I'll invite you this morning to turn to the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. For the past two and a half months, we have been going through this book verse by verse and phrase by phrase, and we come this morning to our our last message of this book. We're going to focus on the last six verses, which is all of chapter four. Uh, Before we actually get into Malachi this morning, I did want to give you a a vision for what's going to take place from the pulpit here over the the next several months. Um, I did email this out. Some of you know uh, what's going to be taking place. But um, for those of you who haven't or didn't read the the Weekly Word, I'm going to begin next week a topical uh, sermon series uh, entitled, Not Our Ways. Uh, I I introduced that uh, in Malachi a few weeks back. We're in chapter 3, a sermon I read from... um, um, from Edward Payson that has made a big impact upon my life and how I've thought about the Scriptures. And I want to just bring that week by week. Each week, take a different text of Scripture and demonstrate how God's ways are different than our ways. Next week, we'll look at Genesis 3, 1 through 7 and just talk about how God created a world and, and permitted evil to come. I'm not sure. When we create something, we want to create it perfect and nice. Um, We'll, we'll look the next week, I think it's Romans chapter 5, about the federal headship of, of Adam and that when he sinned, all of us became guilty in him. It's like, that's like not how we would do things. We'll, we'll look at how sanctification is slow. We'll look at how salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. We'll, we'll pick up these topics and, and, and my aim with that is just to blow your mind to say, wow, God's ways are not my ways. And that you, things you don't understand, just you'd bow, just I see it clear in Scripture and you just bend to that. So we're going to do that all summer long. Eight weeks, I'm going to take up a different thing according to the eight points of that sermon that Edward Payson preached. Uh, I'll be gone for two weeks. Tim Sattler is going to come out and uh, preach for us. He's a pastor, former pastor at uh, Grace Church of the Valley. I've talked with him. He's ready to do that uh, while we're gone in California. And uh, then returning there, um, we're going to start the book of First Peter. I'm excited about First Peter and what it has to, to teach us uh, So we go through that book. I think that will maybe take us about a year or so. So that kind of projects us out where we're going to be. But today we were in Malachi for one last message. And uh, also just by way of preparation, at the end of my message this morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So I, I trust that your hearts will be prepared even now to, to think and ready for that time. Malachi chapter 4, 1 through 6. Let me read it for you here. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will rescue the hearts of the fathers to, he will restore the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Well, every single one of these verses, I'm not sure if you sensed it or not, but every single one of these verses is looking forward. 
They're all anticipating a future day. In fact, four times in these six verses, we see this future day mentioned. Look at it there in verse 1. For behold, the day is coming. It's talking about this day that is, is coming. It's talking about the future. At the end of verse 1, we see, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze. This future day coming, anticipating the future. We read in verse 3, right there at the end, on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. We see verse 5, we read of the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And the verses that don't include the word day in it are all looking forward and, and anticipating a day, a future time in which healing will take place, in which happiness will take place, in which there's hope and there's, there's joy and there's looking and there's also judgment. This is the day of the Lord that's coming. And, and the day of the Lord is really the day when the Lord visits the earth. It's what it is. It's when He comes to be among His people, receive them unto Himself, and for His enemies to destroy them. That's what the day of the Lord is talking about. And how appropriate it is for Malachi to speak of this future day and this future time. Historically speaking, Malachi was, a, was the last of a long list of prophets to prophesy in the Old Testament. He prophesied long after Isaiah and Jeremiah were laid to rest. He prophesied after Ezekiel and Daniel, who prophesied about during the time of the exile. He prophesied after Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. He prophesied after Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. He prophesied after Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. Malachi was the very last of the prophets to write. And it is appropriate for us to have Malachi as the very last book in our Old Testament. The Hebrew Old Testament is not quite that way. It ends with Second Chronicles, which historically brings you up to the point here because all the prophets are in the middle, just right after the Psalms. But in our Bibles, it's just perfect right here, right at the end of the Old Testament. And between Malachi and Matthew, you can turn your page. It's just 400 years of silence. 400 years until Messiah would come on the scene. After these words were spoken here in Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, God was going to be silent until the Messiah would come. And my message this morning is a, appropriately entitled, The Final Word. Not only does our passage this morning include the final words of Malachi's oracle, but also contains the final words of our Lord that He spoke to the nation of Israel before the dawning of the Messianic age. And those of the Old Testament didn't realize this would be the final word. But God knew it would be the final word. And, and so I look at this passage. This is a great <clears throat> message that He communicated to us. He communicated the most important things for Israel to hear. And thus He communicated the most important things that we are to hear. Israel was not to forget these words. And we also likewise are not to forget these words. Well, let's look at our text by way of outline. I've, I've, um, I've identified three coming events. First, we have in verse 1, the coming heat. The coming heat. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every doer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. The words we read here describe a day when the Lord's returned, and it's going to be a hot day. Now, we think here in the Midwest that we know what hot is about, right? Come about August, the late August. Maybe it's about a week or so that it's about 95 degrees outside every day and about 95% humidity. We think we know what hot is, right? 
Well, I got an email from Dan Bashaw this week. I've been going back, emailed him early in the week, and he emailed me later. And uh, he really put it in perspective. Many of you know the Bashaws. Dan was Dan and June were part of our congregation, and recently Dan joined the military and is currently currently stationed in Florida, near the coast of Florida. And things are going well for him. But in one of the paragraphs of his email, Dan wrote to me about the weather in Florida. He says, "Here it is. What is May June?" He says, "It is starting to get very humid now." Although we've been told that so far this is nothing, is what he says. So you can anticipate what these Floridans, you know, are are seeing. Oh, you think this is hot? You just wait, buddy. I remember I had a similar occurrence to that when my wife came out and from California and brought her out here to Illinois and said, "You think this is cold? You just wait, honey. We'll give you some cold." But those in Florida don't know how hot Malachi describes this day. Malachi describes this day as hot. You see it there in verse 1, like a furnace. And when you think of a furnace burning, you think of several hundred degrees. Too hot to touch. And that's what Malachi is talking about. I think about um, Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to bow down to the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar. And it was very clear, if you don't bow down, you will be thrown into the furnace and burned. When they refused, Nebuchadnezzar was enraged. And he gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it's usually heated. And the blazing heat of the furnace was so great that it killed those men who brought Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego right on the right on the precipice. Right, the fire came out and burned Nebuchadnezzar's servants. Well, when you think about coming heat of Messiah, you need to think about it burning like a, a furnace, because that's how Malachi would have us to think about it. That's how we need to think about it. He also says the day will be hot like a fire ablaze. You can see that down there. The day is coming and will set them ablaze. Again, that's a, it's a fiery, inferno kind of word. In your bulletin, we do have an announcement, which um, Andy will talk about a little bit later, about the, the uh, Miltons have invited us to their house this Friday, um, June 8th, for a bonfire. And uh, they've got lots of things to burn. In fact, they even talked to Lance a little bit before the service just about the big, the big pile have to be burned. And I remember you invited us two years ago. Maybe we were at your house for a nice picnic. It was a wonderful time. And it's a big pile to, to burn. And I said, Lance, you have as much stuff this time as you had last time. And he says, I've got more. So it's bigger. And he says, even i got some stuff on the side, which is too much to put on this, this big mound of stuff. And I remember <clears throat> when the... The pile was lit on fire. I remember being amazed at the heat it put off. I mean, at one point you couldn't get within 50 feet of it, you know. And even still, for a long time, you wanted to get close and you had to really shield your your face because it was really hot. It was burning hot. And that's the picture that he gives here: a fire ablaze. When the Lord returns, it's a feeling that all who are alive will experience: furnace burning, fire blazing. It's the day of the Lord. In fact, that, this picture here is consistent with the other pictures given in the Bible of Christ's return. Listen to David. He prophesied in Psalm 21 of the end of his enemies. He said, You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath and fire will devour them. Jesus described how the Son of Man will send forth His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. 
Paul described the day when the Lord Jesus would be fully revealed from heavens with these words. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. says, The Lord Jesus would be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In Revelation 16, verses 8 and 9, we see John speaking the same way. Describing the fourth angel pouring out the bowl of God's wrath that was given to him. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun. It was given to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with a fierce heat. It's the picture that God gives us of the day of the Lord. It's a day of heat. It's a day of hot. It's burning. It's blazing. It's destructive. Listen, and it's not pleasant. It's not supposed to be pleasant. It's the future of the world. There's a coming heat upon this world And you know what? There's a reason why God reveals Himself in this way when He comes with heat. It has to do with His character. It has to do with His promise. First of all, it has to do with His character in the sense that God is a a holy God and can only tolerate evil for so long. As people rise up against Him in their arrogance and evil doing, like verse 1 says, though He's extremely patient and though His long-suffering goes for years and, and decades and centuries and generations... His patience will come to an end and He ultimately will vindicate Himself by punishing those who've transgressed His ways. You know, this very thing took place in the days of Noah. God created the world. In the days of Noah, He looked down upon the sons of men. He saw that the wickedness of men was great upon the earth and that every thought and intention of the heart was only evil continually. God was sorry that He made man. He brought a worldwide flood upon the earth and destroyed all life upon the earth. Except for a bunch of animals and except for eight people who he saved through the ark. Once the ark rested upon the mountain, the earth dried up. The Lord made a covenant with Noah. He had to destroy the earth because of his his character. He's promised not to destroy it with water again because of a promise he made. I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by water of the flood Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And every time you see a rainbow, you ought to be reminded of God's promise never to flood the earth. However, though the Lord will never flood the earth again, there wait a day when He's going to burn the earth. What drowned the first time will be incinerated the second time. And that was Peter's message, 2 Peter 3, verses 5-7. through 7. By the Word of God, the heaven existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And that's what Malachi 4 is talking about. This is the day of fire coming. This is His second return when He is coming in all of His splendor and glory to fully purge the earth of wickedness and evil. That's interesting. As I preach this message, you can respond in, in several different ways. First of all, you might respond with a response of... Um, You know, I debated what to say. And I think maybe apathy. You can respond in apathy. It's kind of like, oh, I hear that. God's going to destroy the world. Yeah, whatever. You should be sitting there today realizing that you may very well be the recipient of God's wrath. God's fire wrath comes upon the arrogant. Look there in verse verse 1. That's those who are proud and have no need for anyone to correct them because their ways are right. 
Or the evildoers, those who are engaged in their evil practices, the wrath of God will come upon them. He will make them be, verse 1, like, like chaff. They think they stand today in their proud arrogance, but they will be chaff, which blows away. In fact, God's destruction of them is so great that it's going to be complete, penetrating even to the root, is what verse 1 says, leaving them neither root nor branch. You know, it is interesting that the root and branch terminology is oftentimes used in Scripture about the remnant of Israel. Israel in their sin disobeys the Lord, and oftentimes He wipes out many people, but always in the Scripture He says, but I'll leave a root. It's the root from Jesse that comes. Right? You cut it off, but there'll be a root. Even Nebuchadnezzar, when all of his glory was taken away, there still was a root in the trunk of the tree which would grow up. But in this case, the fire is going to permeate all the way down, destroy not even a root, nothing left. It's going to be like chaff. And you may be sitting here, you should be fearing, but you're like, yeah, whatever, it's not going to hit me. Things may be going well for you right now. It's the point of Malachi 3.15. We call the arrogant blessed. Like these are the proud ones that are going to stand. They're getting their way today. Also, the doers of iniquity are being built up. These are doing wickedness. Are out there? They're doing. They're doing great. And that's me. I'm doing well. I'm prospering today. Things are going well in this life. But know that there's a day when the evildoer and arrogant will be cut off. And you need to know that you need to repent while there's hope because there's hope today if you're responding in apathy. In fact, this is really the reason why Malachi wrote. He's writing to a disobedient people who were apathetic, who should have been fearing the Lord and yet they weren't. They needed to have their sins exposed and the consequences of the way to them if they didn't repent. Right? They needed to fear the coming judgment, but these people in Malachi's day were not. They were laissez-faire with God. Yeah, whatever. But the promise of reconciliation was there. Verse 7, return to me. Chapter 3, verse 7, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you know what? There's another response that these things generate. And I say this, it's a response of comfort. It was very interesting. As I was preaching this about fiery, fire and heat and hot, I really was, I was looking out among you and there were some of you who had big smiles on your face. This message of the fiery wrath of the judgment of God came with, with smiles. It's, it's really an interesting dynamic, but that, that's what took place with some of you here even this morning. And I think you're those who maybe are a little bit like those in Malachi's day who see the, the evil and the wickedness about. You see the fact that maybe the justice of God doesn't quite seem to be fully taking place right now like in 2.17. You know and you see that the, the evil today, it looks kind of like things are going well for them. And it looks like there's no profit in serving God. Malachi 3.14 And you see the arrogant prospering ability, but, but you know in your mind that there's a day when God's going to write that. And thus the, the message coming of the fiery wrath and indignation of God does nothing but puts a smile on your face. Because you know that He'll vindicate those who fear Him and he'll destroy the wicked. You know, and, and I trust that that's where many of you are today. You're seeking with your whole heart to submit your ways to him. And sure, you see the difficulties around you. But if you look at the end, you can see that all will be made right. 
And you can rejoice in the coming wrath and judgment of God. Psalm 96 and Psalm 98 are perfect pictures of that. Picturing the entire creation singing the praise of God because He's coming to judge the world. Psalm 96, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all it contains, let the field exult and all that's in it, and all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for He's coming, He's coming to judge the earth. He'll judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Listen, that's how it is with the Lord's return. As we anticipate that day, right? some will be apathetic, some maybe be fearful, should be fearful, right? cower at this message, and others will rejoice at this message because they know they're coming King is coming. They'll be vindicated. The Lord will be vindicated of all His glory. It's the coming heat. Let's look now at the coming hope. It comes in verses 2 and 3. But for you, I see there's a contrast here. There's a contrast between the arrogant and evildoer of verse 1 and those who fear the name of the Lord, verse 2. But for you, and here's the other response, right? The first right, didn't fear, and these do fear, and the fears of God are comforted. But you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. It's a simple fact that when God's return, the the results are going to be different depending upon the character of the people. The sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. I've heard many people say that. The sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And imagine yourself in the home of Iraq surrounded by U.S. troops with guns pointed towards the house all the way around. Right? You're in the house, you look out front and, and U.S. troops are got their guns cocked on you. And you go around back and you see that you're surrounded. You're stuck. And then you hear a voice calling through one of those portable loudspeakers. We have you surrounded. Come out with your hands up. Now, think about this. If you were a well-known Iraqi terrorist, what would your response be? You'd be shuddering in your boots knowing that your day is coming where you're going to be an end. But if you're an American journalist being held captive in a rocky home, what's your response going to be? Woohoo! My redemption draws nigh! Same result, same situation, different responses. And so it is with the coming of the Lord. Some fear that day, some will meet their end that day, but others have a hope that is great. And the hope comes, verse 2, here look at this, when the Son of Righteousness rises. Now this is the only time this phrase is used in all of Scripture. So it's not like we can compare it to other places and say, okay, Son of Righteousness means this here, and so therefore it needs to mean this. Or, you know, we don't have any of that. And so it causes Bible translators, some just say the Son of Righteousness means like the, the pervading midst of the sun in general that, that comes. Righteousness will pervade like the sun. But most people say, and I think this is probably right, that it means to Christ in the sense that he, when He returns, He's going to bring a healing. He's going to bring a restoration. He's going to be the, the Son that comes. I mean, it doesn't really matter. It's all talking about the day of the Lord when He comes. But when you hear these words of verse 2, the Son of Righteousness rising with healing His wings, 
You go forth like calves and skip about like calves from the stall. You'll tread down the wicked. Is there a hope that rises in your heart? I really hope there is because that's what this passage is meant to communicate. These verses promise healing. And these verses promise happiness. And these verses promise victory to those who fear the Lord. And there's great reason for us to hope. Well, when the Lord returns, there is healing. Even as it says there, right? He will rise with healing in its wings. Now, for those of you who believed in Christ, you have tasted this. You've tasted of the healing. And the healing you've tasted of is the forgiveness of your sins. Your sins that you've committed have been forgiven. They've been covered by the the blood of Christ. And and there is a healing that takes place, right? The things that were transgressed against, against you, you have the ability to forget them, to lay them aside, to be healed from them. Due to indwelling sin, though, you know you still have sinful longings in your soul and it's painful for you to see your sinful desires. But the truth is, when the Lord returns, they they had healing which new forgiveness and and new righteousness and in some sense, positionally, will come to know that practically. And there will be a true healing that we've only tasted of. Our sin will be gone. Our sinful longings will be gone. Receive new bodies. And if that weren't enough, our sicknesses, death crying, will be wiped away. You can read about that in Revelation 21. That's the healing that we can look forward to. In fact, several passages of Scripture even speak about the, the body that we get. We have been sown perishable, but we will put on the imperishable. We've been sown mortal, but we will put on immortality. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. We will be changed, right? Our bodies will be transformed. If we are alive at the time when Christ returns, our bodies will be transformed to have glorified bodies. We're dead, we'll be raised to have sinless spiritual bodies. Much like the body of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Indeed, in this house our bodies we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, Inasmuch as having put it on, we will not be found naked. For indeed, while we're in this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed. That is the clothing of the, the righteousness to fully come. So what is mortal be swallowed up by life. And you can read all of 1 Corinthians 15. speaks about since Christ was raised from the dead, there is a resurrection from the dead and we too will rise and will have healing in its wings is what verse 2 is speaking about. But not only will there be healing, but when the Lord returns, there's happiness too. It says there in verse 2, right? And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Now you can picture this, right? A, a calf going out and going from the stall and happy. And I thought maybe I could picture it for you, but, you know, so I thought about this. You, uh, I thought, you know what, I, I don't know much about cattle. I go every year to the Boone County Fair and see these cows kind of sitting there and, and the beef cows are okay. I really like the dairy cows, which are huge and skinny as can be and have huge udders, you know, just the milk in there is just amazing. In my lifetime, I've visited a few cattle farms, but beyond that, my knowledge of cattle is exhausted. <laughs> That's all I know. 
And uh, so what I did, I called a friend of mine who's in the cattle business, and, and I said, I called up J.D., Dad, you know him. I said, J.D., help me to understand what this verse means. <laughs> and he, he said this, he said that when calves are first released from, released from their confined stall to roam the open field, here, and, and I use his words, and see, I didn't know this. He says, they go crazy, is what they do. He said, and I'm just going to read for you what, what he said to me on the phone. I'm sitting there just writing it down as fast as I can. He says, Steve, it's like they enter a different world. For the first time, they realize that their legs really work. They get all excited and will jump up and down and run all around. Sometimes they're so excited that they'll, they'll fall on their sides. Sometimes they'll even run into fences because they're so excited skipping around, they're not even looking where they're going. It's comical watching their excitement and their enthusiasm. Now, I had no idea that this was such a, such a big deal. In fact, he said um, he's been in the cattle business for years. And uh, it's one of those things, you know, probably like the, the first snow that comes. I, I never tire of that first snow that comes and you walk outside and it's like, deathly quiet. There's nothing rustling around. I never tire of that day. And so also he, he talks about how he never tires of the day when the, the cattle come skipping out. He says you see it and you're drawn to it and you see that the, the gist of joy is there. Um, in fact, he even told me that come about this time, you know, it's springtime. He says oftentimes, you know, he'll talk to his wife or his kids or other people say, oh, look at the cattle. You know, and there they are. They're running around, three or four of them, just racing around and just running around. You know, maybe it's a little bit like a, the rainbow. How many of you have seen a rainbow? And yet, how many of you say, oh, look, a rainbow? That's what this is like. And the calves come about skipping and, and jumping around and and what a great picture this is that Scripture gives us of the pure happiness and joy that will come when the Lord returns to those who fear the Lord. I mean, just think about having a new body, sinless and free of all pain. And just think about being truly free for the first time. It will be utter joy and happiness, right? And we will be like this calf skipping about saying, woohoo! That's the hope that we can have when Christ returns. And on that day, we'll know true victory, right? When the Lord returns, there's victory as well. comes in verse 3. You'll tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing. It's the righteous who will reign over the wicked in the end. All the wicked people we see now hating the Lord arrogantly defiling Him, will someday be suppressed under your feet. Those who fear the Lord will be victorious on that final day. Oh, it's not because we're so strong and we're so mighty, but because our commander-in-chief will win the day for us. Our hope and confidence isn't in our might and our strength. Our hope is in the power of Jesus when He returns. C.S. Lewis captured this well in his book, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you saw the movie Narnia, you can kind of remember what he was talking about. Shortly after the white witch killed Aslan on the stone table, she called out to her followers. And now I read from C.S. Lewis. He says in his book, 
the wicked witch said this, Now follow me and we will set about what remains of this war. It will not take us long to crush the human vermin and the traitors now. That great fool, the cat, lies dead. And so she went off to war. And she and her followers were fighting against Peter and Edmund and the rest of Aslan's army that weren't stone in the witch's castle. And they were fighting and the witch was getting the upper hand. (laughs) Until Aslan, having risen from the dead, arrives in the battlefield. And C.S. Lewis writes what took place. He says, With a roar that shook all Narnia from the western lamppost to the shores of the eastern sea, the great beast flung himself upon the white witch. The battle was all over a few minutes after their arrival. Most of the enemy had been killed in the first charge of Aslan and his companions. And when those who were still living saw the witch was dead, they either gave themselves up or took to flight. That's a great picture of what it's going to be like when Satan and his army is defeated. When Christ comes back, Satan will be no match for Jesus and his army. And the Apostle John had the privilege to look into the future to see it. Revelation 19. Let me just read this extensive passage for you. Revelation 19, verse 11 through 21. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, which has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire. There's the heat again, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword which came out of the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Carrion right among the battlefield destroyed. The birds of prey come and eat him up. They're like chaff, burnt. What's amazing about this is that John saw the history, saw the future. The battle has already been won. It just needs to be fought. The question to you all is this. Will you volunteer freely in the day of His power? Psalm 110 verse 3. Or will you continue in your rebellious ways? Oh, cherish the hope. Cherish the hope that comes here in verses 2 and 3. 
Well, we've seen the coming heat, the coming hope. Now let's look at the coming help. Verses 4, 5, and 6. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, before the Lord comes again, He will send Elijah to prepare the way. That's what this is talking about. We saw back in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, that Elijah would come and clear the way before me. And that's what took place the first time Jesus came. Elijah came and cleared the way before him. We saw three out of the four gospel writers quote from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, identify John the Baptist as the fulfillment of the messenger who was coming to prepare the way of the Lord. And so likewise, we see here in chapter 4, the New Testament also speaks about how these prophecies were fulfilled in John the Baptist as well. Maybe you remember Zechariah, the high priest, was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord to burn incense. It's probably on the... Yom Kippur, probably the Day of Atonement, all Israel was gathered outside. Zechariah was chosen. And uh, the whole multitude of people were outside praying, anticipating, watching him as he goes in. Zechariah came in to offer the incense there before the Lord. Suddenly saw an angel that appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zechariah, rightly so, was troubled and, and fear gripped him. But listen carefully what the angel told him. He said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. This is Luke 1, 13 and following. He said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Here it is. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. A quote right there from Malachi chapter 4 verse 6. And the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What a wonderful prophecy for a father to hear. Uh, uh, just this past week, many, most, all of you know, maybe not all, um, that my wife gave birth to a son. Healthy, doing well. We named him David Andrew. Rich Garden said that he always wanted to name a son David Andrew. So I told Rich, maybe we got this thing going between us. I'm not sure. But David Andrew is his name. And um, he's doing well. We can't help but to think about what it will be like in the future. I had uh, one person come and talk with me after a baby was born and just said, you know, well, what's his life going to be like? That's not him crying. <laughs> He's at home. All right. What's his life going to be like? Is he going to be maybe a great missionary to a foreign land, see many converted? I said, I don't know. But I just uh, how I would love to see him stand on my shoulders and go far beyond me in serving the Lord to His glory. The glory of Christ, that is. I don't know. I'd love to see Him toil and labor and see many converted through His name. What will God do with Him? I don't know. All we can do is hope and dream. But I think about this prophecy came to Zechariah. Zechariah is a father 
who didn't yet have a son. Elizabeth was barren, wasn't, didn't conceive yet. But he said, Elizabeth's going to conceive and here's going to be the son and here's what the son is going to be like. In fact, this man's going to be so great, as Jesus said later in Matthew chapter 11, no one has risen among the children of men greater than John the Baptist. And what a prophecy. I, I mean, I can think about that as a new father for the fifth time. Uh, a, a new father about a son and what he's going to be. And the son would be great in the eyes of the Lord. He'd be filled with the Holy Spirit. He'd be a preacher of repentance who would see revival come at his hand, his mouth. He'd be the forerunner of Messiah who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And through his preaching, he'd turn many, turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. He would see many disobedient come to the Lord and submit themselves in righteousness to Him. He'd prepare His people for the coming of the Lord. But, but beyond the mere prophecy of a man, though, with John the Baptist and Zechariah, the prophecy is bigger than that. With this angelic announcement, it was the dawning of the Messianic age. I mean, this was the coming, not only of John the Baptist, who would be great, but it's even, even greater because Jesus was coming. And in fact, if you um, look at Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus said that John the Baptist is greatest among men, one of the reasons why he is the greatest among men ever is because he pointed to Jesus because he pointed out Jesus more clearly than anybody else did. And so great would he be that he would be the one to identify the Messiah to come. Well, in giving this announcement, the angel quotes from verse 6 of this passage. The angel prophesying of the one who would prepare the day when the Lord would visit his people once again. And the sending of John the Baptist, though, as my point says, was really the sending of help. Think about when John the Baptist came and the tremendous help he was to the people. He came and preached repentance and he was flesh and blood instructing people in the ways of God. If people had instruction, questions, they could come straight to him. And, and he told the crowds, real specific way to show your repentance is to share your possessions with those who are without. The tax collectors, when they came, how, how shall we show our repentance? He said, collect no more than what you've been ordered to collect. And when the soldiers came up and said, how shall we repent? John the Baptist told them again also how they should repent. Take no money by force. Don't accuse anyone falsely. Be content with your wages. Taking the, the Word of God and applying it in each circumstance, that was a great help to Israel. How does it they should respond? And he had a great following. It was prophesied in... Um, in Luke chapter 1, about the, the great following that he would have. Many would be turned back. Listen to what Mark, verse, chapter 1, verse 5 says. His following was so great that all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. Just a huge help to Israel. All the country of Judea. All the people of Jerusalem. Now, that's not every single one because we know the Pharisees. He turned away and said, you brood of vipers. They were never baptized by him because he didn't show forth fruit to the repentance. That was not right. But as these people turned, you know, certainly their hearts were returned to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers in fulfillment here of Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. And clearly... These words were fulfilled in John the Baptist. But you know what? There's another sense, though, where these words weren't fully fulfilled. Especially as you look at verse 1. The day is coming, burning. We've, we've not seen that day. We've not seen the righteous fully know the victory that is theirs in verse 3. 
when Jesus comes, it's difficult to describe it like verse 5 does about a great and terrible day, especially in light of how that day is described in verses 1 and 2. And so typical of the many prophecies in the Bible, there's a certain sense where it was fulfilled in the days of Jesus, and yet there's a greater fulfillment to come in His second return. And I think that's exactly what was taking place here. John the Baptist certainly fulfilled these words with Elijah, and yet there's another day that Elijah will come And so I I believe that when the next Elijah comes, before that final day, he will come, just as the Lord promised he will right here. And and I think I'm on solid ground with that. When Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, it was long after John the Baptist had been beheaded, he said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Though even in that same context, he said, Elijah came, and they already did to him whenever they willed. And that's how prophecy works. There's a fulfillment in some sense in Christ and there's an ultimate fulfillment when He comes back and fully establishes His his kingdom. And so somehow, in some way, Elijah will come back. Maybe He's the witnesses of Revelation, chapter 11, perhaps. But that's speculation and we're not going through Revelation today. We're talking about Elijah though. And when he comes back, I, I do believe that He will restore hearts of fathers to their children. I mean, what greater need is there for us in this land today to see fathers' hearts return to their children and children return to their parents? And the condition of the family across our world is in a terrible state. Divorce races, divorce rates are, are high. I'd say higher than never, but maybe they're coming down a little bit because everyone's already gotten divorced. You can't get any bigger than that. Who knows? And I'd say abortion rates, though, there's some encouragement. Still, you think about the number of babies killed in our land is unbelievable. And and what greater indicator is there of fathers and mothers who have no regard for their children than the voluntary slaughter of them? We have much need for fathers to have their hearts set for their children. I mean, children today are neglected. They're abused. Someone needs to come and help turn, turn them. And I believe that Elijah will before that day. We could talk much more about that, but for the sake of time, I want to finish my message in verse 4. Because I think it ties together all of Malachi and it gives us a vision for the future. It says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and the ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. The promise of verses 5 and 6 is that God will send help. The promise of verse 4 is that God has already sent help. In other words, in the Scriptures, remember the law of Moses. He sent the Scriptures. The Scriptures are a gift that keep on giving. They're a help that was given and they are help that comes as we read it and believe it and trust it. Its counsel is always appropriate. Its lessons never become outdated and we need to turn to them and remember them. I love how verse 4 uses again this word, remember. I mean, throughout the whole oracle of Malachi, we have seen the major problem with Israel is that they'd forgotten They'd forgotten His love. They'd forgotten His honor. They'd forgotten His people. They'd forgotten His justice. They'd forgotten His faithfulness. They'd forgotten His ways. And God says, remember the law of Moses. Because if you go back to the law of Moses, every single one of these issues, the love of God, the honor of God, the people of God, the justice of God, the faithfulness of God, the ways of God are all addressed there in the book of Moses explicitly. Deuteronomy 7 Verses 7 and 8 speak about the love of God. 
I have loved you, says the Lord, Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. And you say, how have you loved us? The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you are few in number, more in number than any of the peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. <laughs> Moses addressed the love of God. I loved you, Israel. Not because you're great. I chose to love you. The honor of God. Boy, did, did the Pentateuch talk about the honor of God when Nadab and Abihu brought strange fire before the Lord. You remember what happened? Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, right? The priests, I will be treated as holy and before all the people I will be honored. Aaron therefore kept silent. Before all the people I will be honored. That was instructions to the priests who came in and defiled the altar. What did God do? He says, I will be honored and killed Nadab and Abihu. That's the lesson the priests need to learn because they'd forgotten his honor. Moses addressed the people of God. The people had missed that. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. They'd break in their bonds of community. They, they, they broke their bonds of matrimony. They missed the covenant of their fathers. And God says in Deuteronomy 7, verses 2 through 4, When you come into the land, make no covenant with them, nor show favor to them. Further, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your hearts away from following me to serve other gods. And the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and He will quickly destroy you. That's exactly what they did. They intermarried, and their hearts drifted from the Lord. They'd forgotten the people of God. They, Moses addressed the justice of God, which Israel forgot in chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 6. In Exodus 34, God says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. He keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And yet the promise comes of the justice of God, right? He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers and the children and the grandchildren, the third and fourth generations. When Israel was doubting the justice of God, they should have remembered, right? This, this great passage. That, that God, when He's going to show all His glory before Moses, He spoke about how, how gracious and compassionate God was and He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. They, tried, they needed to trust Moses. They needed to remember what Moses said. Regarding the faithfulness of God, you see that throughout the Pentateuch. In Exodus 3.16, I just pulled this verse out. It might be the, a good one to show you. The Lord said to Moses, Go and gather the elders of Israel together. And show them my faithfulness, saying to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Listen, I'm faithful to you, Israel, and you've been enslaved, but I'm faithful to the covenant. You cried out to me, I remember my covenant, and I'm going to be faithful to you. And even when they sinned in the wilderness, and even when God was exasperated with them, He still was faithful, didn't utterly destroy them. Israel had forgotten the ways of God. Verses chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. They'd forgotten that God is a little bit different, right? He, he, he lifts the lowly is what He does. Right? He weighs the heart. 
He delays the judgment. These ways that we, we think are different. And we think, no, God, you can't be like this. This is how God is. And, and God showed in the Pentateuch a great picture of how his ways are different than our ways in the story of Joseph. Joseph's brothers were mean to him and cruel to him, sold him into slavery. Then they lied to their father about him, saying he'd been killed. Joseph spent years in prison being wrongfully accused, but finally was elevated to the second in command in Egypt. And the moral of the story comes in Genesis 50, verse 20. You meant evil against me, but I, God, meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. God's ways are different than our ways. He takes a man through his deceitful brothers, through prison, being accused. He walked righteously and Potiphar's wife accused him wrongfully. He was righteous, but accused wrongly, thrown in prison. And even in prison, he had hopes of getting out, but he didn't get out and was stayed there for a while until finally he ascended to the second in command in Egypt and brought the people out of Israel into safety in Egypt where the famine wasn't as severe, where they prepared for the, salmon, for the famine. Well, getting back to Malachi, they, they should have remembered Moses. That's what they should have remembered. The statutes and the ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel... And particularly, they should have remembered how to walk. Particularly, even maybe this is talking about the Ten Commandments. The ways in which He commanded you to walk. You should walk in those ways. And Israel is not to forget what the Lord commanded. And so, in some sense, help had already come, but that help in the Scriptures would still come as they read it and believed it. And for us, listen, we have the Bible. We have Moses. We have Malachi. We have the New Testament. But you know what? Our help and our hope is, is so much better than that. Because our hope really comes through the Scripture and points to Jesus who is our, our living hope. He isn't dead words on a page. He's living and alive and well. It's Jesus who will protect us from the coming heat. And His return someday is our coming hope. And He today is our present hope. In recent days, I've been spending much time in the, in the book of Hebrews, just going over it, memorizing much of it, thinking about it, pondering it. One of the things that really stood out to me is just this aspect of Jesus being our high priest. You know, the New Testament doesn't talk about that a lot, but Hebrews makes that as the main point. He is our high priest. And He's the one who's there and always ready to help. Hebrews 7, verse 23 says, The former priests on the one hand, they existed in greater numbers because they were prohibited from death from continuing on. But Jesus, on the other hand, because He continues forever, He holds His priesthood permanently. And therefore, 7, verse 25 says, Therefore, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to Him because He lives always to make intercession for them. And that describes what this priest is like. Hebrews 7, verse 26. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law points men as high priests who are weak. The word of the oath, which came after the law, points a son made perfect forever. And as we look at it, it's our coming help. 
Jesus is our present help. He is our coming help as the high priest who ever lives, always, forever, praying for us. And therefore, as Hebrews 4, verse 16 says, we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, the people of Malachi's day were told to, to hope for that future day, right? the coming help. Well, the help has come and He is here. And that's where we need to place our hope. Because we need help, right? We're weak. We're feeble. And even the high priests, they're appointed. The law appoints men who are weak. But we have one who's strong. Jesus Christ Himself. And He's the one that we need to look to. He's the one I encourage you to anticipate, hope in, trust in as He helps you. So let's pray and then we'll transition to the Lord's Supper. Lord, I would pray that you would use my words this morning as a, um, as a help to encourage the people here at Rock Valley Bible Church. Lord, as those who are thinking about the future day when you come with your heat, I pray that Christ would come and protect us from that through faith in him. I pray indeed that he would be our, 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 our hope, our coming hope. When He comes in all His glory, may we find comfort in that. And I pray today, as we wait for those future days, that He would be our present help, as He will be our our future help. Lord, I pray that these things, may they sink deep into our hearts and our minds. Lord, in all ways, direct us toward Him. I thank You for the book of Malachi and the, the refining work that is done. I pray that we as a congregation would never forget Um, your ways, never forget your love, never forget your people, never forget your honor, never forget your faithfulness, never forget your justice. But realize that you're a righteous and holy God who remembers us. You write it in your book, a book of remembrance. Lord, never ever to forget it again. That we're your people. And in that, Lord, I, I do rejoice. And I pray now as we celebrate the supper that we celebrate every month or so, as it causes us really physically to... Reflect upon Christ and all who He is. I pray this be a special time of communing with Him, that we would uh, think about Him who saved us from our sins. Uh, I pray that we would be like um, like the woman in Luke chapter seven who knew that she was forgiven much, and knowing that she loved much. Lord, I pray You'd show us her sins and how heinous they are in Your sight and cause us to reflect upon how much has been forgiven. Lord, that we would love you much. And so God, in this time, I, I would pray that you would show Christ to us and to show him in all his glory and his splendor what his work he did for us accomplished in the cross. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the men are soon going to come. I just want to read one more verse in... Um,